morning we're going to be back in Matthew chapter 27. You want to get out your Bibles and turn there with me. Appreciate uh, the prayers, appreciate the singing, um, appreciate each one being here. Uh, If you're a visitor, uh, we welcome you and thank you for coming. Tommy kind of preached my lesson, but that's okay. I don't mind. Um, no, we are going to be looking at a very similar text to what he pointed to in Mark uh, this morning. Um, this last week, uh, decided to head up to uh, where I grew up in North Alabama, a little town called Union Hill. Uh, it's the first time that I've been in that town uh, in 16 years. Uh, so. You know, I, I expected a lot of things to change, and there were a few small changes, but the school looked exactly the same. Uh, my dirt road was still a dirt road that was really horrible to drive down, um, and and it was it was interesting to go do that because it just brought back a flood of memories. You know, you hadn't been there in 16 years, you kind of forget things. I mean, I felt like I'd lost track of all of my childhood, and I'd forgotten so many things, and then I. Uh, showed up, and I was like, I don't know if I want to remember all of these things uh, that, that I had forgotten. Uh, one of the things that I did remember as I was looking at the school is um, just the struggle of growing up. You know, I mean, it's not easy uh, being, being a little kid in public school and uh, trying to fit in and things like that. And I remember uh, on one occasion, there was a kid that came in uh, in seventh grade. His name was Alan. Uh, and all the kids kind of poked fun at Alan. Uh, he was different because he had been homeschooled. Uh, his voice was really kind of high-pitched, you know, way, way up there. Uh, and, and he was just, he was really smart. Uh, but we would all pick on him. And I remember being especially mean uh, and cruel to Alan. And, uh, you know, that's something I'm really ashamed of. And I was ashamed of that after I did it, and he ended up leaving school. Uh, you know, within a few months of me and others who were constantly picking on him. Um, And I think it made a big impact on me and kind of made it to where I didn't want to be mean to anybody anymore. Uh, And not only that, uh, I kind of got angry whenever I saw other people picking on people uh, and being mean and cruel. Uh, And I had this desire inside of myself to retaliate. Uh, especially if somebody was being mean to me, you know, and cruel toward me, I wanted there to be justice, you know, and I didn't want these people to get away with the things that they were doing. And, and so the longer I had, the more advanced my punishment or my scheme would be to, to pay them back uh, for what they had done against me or against someone who I cared about. I don't know, I, I, I don't really even, I can't even picture a lot of you being mean uh, or cruel to other people uh, whenever you were children. Um, maybe, maybe that is something that you did take part in, or maybe you were that angel child that didn't really do that at all, but maybe you just sat by and watched as others were being made fun of for fear that, you know, if, if you stood up, that they would turn on you. Um, what we're going to be studying about is, is Jesus being mocked, and there, there, there's a lot of cruelty toward Jesus. And we might think, well, I'm not a child anymore. You know, that doesn't really happen anymore. But we start thinking about it, you know, are we tempted to be mean and cruel uh, to people who are not like us, uh, to people who do things we don't understand or things that we don't really like? Uh, 
Uh, or are we tempted to be quiet whenever uh, there are people being mean to other people? Uh, and maybe we have that strong desire to retaliate. Is that okay? Is that what God really wants us to do? Uh, these are all things that I think the, the text we're studying this morning is going to talk to us about. So I want us to study this together uh, and, and grow from it. We, we've just seen uh, last week that Pilate has failed to save Jesus from uh, the unjust uh, destruction, the unjust uh, murder that the Jews had planned for Jesus. And at the end of the section we looked at uh, last week, uh, verse 26, it said that Pilate released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, scourging is uh, uh, whenever you use whips and you have the bone and you have the glass uh, mixed into the, the leather of the whip so that as it hits your skin, it, it pulls the flesh out. So uh, scourging would have been a tremendous uh, amount of suffering, and this is what Jesus went through. But in verse 27, we start to understand that scourging wasn't enough. That scourging Jesus uh, wasn't the end of the suffering. Uh, and there's this attitude that we see in verses 27 through 31 that the Jews, uh, that the, the Romans seem to have had toward Jesus uh, that, that was just hating him, you know, and, and, you know, despising him. That they would think, this filthy Jew claims to be a king. Look at him. Look at him. He thinks he's a king. He thinks he's all-powerful. Give him a robe. And they take a, a scarlet uh, clothing that they would have wore under their armor that had been faded, that had now turned purple, and they put it on Jesus. They said, give him a robe. Give him a kingly robe. Look at this king. And they say, oh, he needs a crown. You know, the, the, the Caesar would have a garland of flowers around his head. So they take thorns, and they twist it up, and they put it on his head, and they, they give him a crowd. And, the, and then they give him a staff, and the staff is a reed. A reed is like a, a really flimsy uh, stick or, or piece of grain or something like that. And, and there he is. Look at this man. He's the king of the Jews. And he looks ridiculous. And then they bow down to him. And they call out, Hail, king of the Jews. Why do you think they did that? Verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That would be hundreds of soldiers gathering. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Why do they do that? Well, why do we do that? Why do we mock people? Do we think that that's going to give us some increase in stature? Oh, look, all the, all the guys are doing it. Let me see if I can do something bigger than everybody else does so that everybody will look at me and think that I am awesome. 
right? Or maybe it's, I'm, I'm worried that if I don't join in with them, then they're going to turn on me. Maybe that's something that would, would prevent me from stepping in and saying something, uh, that I don't want to be treated like this, so I better go along with whatever it is that they're doing. We want to be accepted. I don't know what was going on in the mind of the Romans as they were going through this, but you can just imagine hundreds gathering around, watching all this take place and joining in on the fun of beating Jesus. But it doesn't end there. In verse 32, it starts to tell us uh, what happens as they, they leave to crucify him. Other gospels tell us that Pilate then brought him, Jesus before uh, the whole crowds of people and said, Behold your king, as he was in this uh, ridiculous outfit. So the humiliation was enormous throughout this. But Matthew skips that and tells us they were going out to crucify him. And he gives us a sense that Jesus was too beaten to carry his own cross. They had to get a, a, a Jew who is from a part of Africa to come and to help him to lift up the, the cross or maybe to, to carry one part of the cross and bring it up to Golgotha where Jesus would be crucified. It tells us they offered him uh, wine to drink, but it was mixed with gall, which would be some kind of a medic medicine that would uh, kind of give him a tranquility and keep him and drug him, essentially, and keep him from fighting against them. Because so many times those who are criminals who are about to be crucified and have their hands and their feet nailed to a, a piece of wood would fight back. And so they would try to give him this, and he refused. Jesus wasn't fighting against them. He didn't need some kind of uh, drug. But then it tells us, after they had offered that to him, in verse 35, it says, and when they had crucified him, and that's it. There's no detail given. And we could get all gory about the details of crucifixion, but Matthew doesn't elaborate on crucifixion. Instead, Matthew does something interesting in this text. He starts going into a bunch of detail. Let's, let's read the whole section, 32 beginning. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him now if he, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew just gives us a huge description of the mockery that was going on and the, the, the indignation that was going on. 
Here's the Romans, they crucify him, and then they just sit down to watch because they got to make sure nobody takes him down. And, and oh, man, look at this. These, he's got nice clothes. Hey, let's divide him up. Oh, there's this seamless garment. Let's cast some lots to see who's going to get the seamless garment. And there's just no real concern about the pain and the agony and everything that's going on. And then he transitions to tell us that people were walking by. Something interesting uh, at Passover there's a lot of people coming into Jerusalem. A lot of people. Tens of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem. And this place, Golgotha, where they had set up the crosses, would have been right by a main road. So thousands of people are walking by and seeing this crucifixion and seeing Jesus on the cross. And instead of getting upset about this and, and speaking out that this isn't right. What are you doing? Jesus is great. It says they wag their heads at him. Oh, you can, you can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, but you can't even get down from a cross. Come on. The religious leaders, of course, join in. They're the reason why Jesus is here. He saved others. Oh, that's true. He did save others. <laughs> he had power. He worked miracles. But he can't save himself. You sure about that? He's the king of Israel. Let him come down. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if God desires him. Just mocking all that Jesus has said, all that Jesus has done to say, look at him now in his weakness. There's no way this man is really anything. He's nothing. He's no one. He's a fool who has suffered because he thought much of himself when he's really nobody. And maybe the most disgusting of all, those who are crucified with him joined in. Like that's going to get them anything in the eyes of those who are watching them be crucified. Like that's going to help them at all. They join in taunting Jesus. Come on, Jesus, get down from the cross. This is just sad. But what's interesting in verse 45, we learn that from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That would be about noon until about 3 p.m. As they're sitting there mocking him, there's, there's clouds rolling in and, and thick clouds that make it so dark. It's just eerie and it's different. And, and they've been sitting here uh, mocking Jesus and there's, there's all this darkness and then Jesus, after all this time, speaks out. Listen to what he says. About the ninth hour, verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour rind and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
Jesus speaks. And his words are surprising. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is very surprising, right? Jesus has said nothing except you have said so whenever they claim that he's the king of Israel. He has uh, kept completely silent, been completely faithful this whole time. And now all of a sudden he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why in the world would Jesus say that? Of all the things that he could say, why would he say those words? Did he believe that God had forsaken him? Does God really forsake those who are righteous in their hour of need? Is that what's happened here? Now, some will say, you see, what's happened is the darkness symbolizes that God has turned away from Jesus and abandoned him. Because God has taken all of mankind's sin and he has imputed man with, he's imputed Jesus with all of mankind's sin. That's pretty big extrapolation from what I'm reading here. Uh, That's pretty creative, pretty imaginative to say that. And what they're doing is they're taking other texts and they're trying to make sense of what's going on here and why would Jesus say these words. But doesn't that go against the character of God that he would abandon his only son? And doesn't it go against everything Jesus has said up until this point? My God is with me. He will always be with me. He's told his disciples, I'm about to go and die and suffer on a cross. And then after that, I will be raised up. He knows everything that's about to happen to him. So why in the world would he say these words? Is it that he's in so much pain and agony at the moment that this is what he says? We saw him in the garden full of anxieties. Maybe he's just struggling with everything. After six hours of hanging on the cross. I believe he probably is in that much pain and suffering. He probably is dealing with all of that. But there's something else to this text that I think a lot of times we don't realize. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And I'd like for you to look at just a few verses in Psalm 22 and to see what what you think about that. When we go to Psalm 22, we notice the opening line of the psalm says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening line of the psalm says that. Now, that's interesting. Jesus, whenever he's on the cross and he decides to speak, He says the exact same thing that the psalmist says in Psalm 22. Why would he say those words exactly? Well, if you skip down to verse 7, notice it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Oh, that sounds interesting. Sounds familiar. Verse 8, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Oh, wow. That is an exact quote of what we had just studied about what the religious leaders had said about Jesus. In verse 18, uh, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, what Matthew was doing is he's giving them all of this information. Instead of going into detail about the cross, is he setting it all up for Jesus' last words. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Matthew understands why Jesus said that on the cross. He said that because what he sees is exactly what was spoken of. He's fulfilling the Old Testament. It's been Matthew's point throughout the entire book. Jesus came to fulfill what God had spoken, to bring all the promises of God to their yes. And on the cross, his last words are pointing them to fulfillment. It's fascinating. Well, what's also interesting is Jesus knows how this psalm ends. Obviously, he's pointing, to the, he's pointing to the psalm because he sees all these things exactly like it. And so he knows how this psalm ends. And if you look at it, verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion, it, it transitions, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. See how it transitions. There's a recognition. You have saved me. Jesus knows. That those who feel forsaken and those who are being mocked and all of that, that God is still with them even though they're suffering and that God will rescue. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The psalm ends with the one who's gone through suffering being rescued and then turning to praise God and then showing all the families of the earth how to do the same thing. So what a wonderful psalm for Jesus to point everyone to as he's hanging on the cross, that he knows there's more than what it appears. Jesus, I don't believe feels betrayed by God. I think he's using these last words to point to fulfillment. Essentially, he said it for us. He said it for us so that we would know that our God will not forsake us in our hour of need, even whenever it feels like it. Jesus is hanging on a cross. That is the symbol of one who is cursed. Man considered him to be despised and rejected by God, but he knows better. And he makes it very clear that he knows better by pointing to this psalm. That's why Matthew, I think, focuses in on these details. Now, I know that there's a lot of religious people who have a lot of doctrines that are associated with this and beliefs that are associated with this. I know that there are other chapters and other verses that, uh, that people have used to back up their beliefs about Jesus becoming sin, you know, the imp- imputation of sin, the Calvinist doctrine of that Jesus was imputed with sin is very popular and very well believed. But I'd like for you to take some time to restudy a lot of those texts and see if you can make more sense out of those things, if that's that's your understanding of belief. Galatians 3, Isaiah 53, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Take a closer look and see if uh, those make sense without believing that Jesus has all of our sin imputed onto him and God took his wrath out on Jesus. 
you know, it's a really hard thing for me to believe. Uh, so I'd like for you to reconsider that, if that's something that you had, had believed uh, prior to this study. But what do we learn from all of this? I think we, we read this, we study this, we've, we've we probably studied through this hundreds of times because it is a popular text to go to as we're considering the Lord's Supper, remembering the suffering of Jesus, what Jesus has gone through. And, and as we read and study these things again, we're appalled by how cruel men can be. You know, this is not really showing us the wrath of God on Jesus, but it's really showing us the wrath of man. Man can be cruel and evil and wicked. Man can go to great lengths to humiliate and indignify someone who is pure and righteous and good, and they don't care. They just lay it all on them. And what's amazing is, this is a picture of how cruel man can be, not just to man, but to God. You know, a lot of times we, we really concern ourselves with what people are doing to us. And we don't really think about what we've done to people. And we really, really don't think about what we've done toward God. This points us to the fact that we do evil things toward our God who loves us, who does so much for us. And I think the main lesson in this text is that God can take it. He can take it. Because he loves us so much. He can take all that we throw at him. And he still loves us. Because the words that Matthew does not record, that other gospels record, Jesus' final words are, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a wonderful, wonderful lesson for us to learn as we study through the scriptures. This is the, the critical message, I think, of the New Testament. So how are we going to apply all of this to ourselves? Well, obviously, any kind of demeaning behavior, uh, jokes that are picking at people and making fun of people whenever it's not understand, understood that this is something that we do. I know in families we, we, we pick sometimes and it's all in fun and, and jesting and it's a good time and, and everything, but you know there's something different. Whenever someone's not a part of your family and they don't understand it, and we got to make sure that we're not being cruel or mean or uh, using other people. Uh, you know, we'll say things like, oh, it's all fun and games and nobody's getting hurt. But words do hurt. Words can hurt very deeply. Um, and we might be afraid to step up whenever we see people being cruel to other people. But we need to understand, you know, if we don't join them, you know, they're going to pick on me might be what we think. But if we do join them, we will join them in the punishment as well. And what we're really doing is we're becoming like the people who killed Jesus. Taking pleasure at the expense of other people is joining ourselves 
with those who said, Oh, he saved others. He can't save himself. And, oh, you think you're going to rebuild the temple, huh? You know, whenever somebody is defeated, whenever somebody is different, whenever somebody is um, being laughed at or, or persecuted in some way for something they did or something they didn't do, are we going to take pleasure in that? Or are we going to step up? And whenever we think about applying this to ourselves, we need to remember that Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't retaliate. Aren't you glad that that's who he is? That even though we sin against him, even though we do all kinds of evil and do, make mistakes and we, we're, we're selfish and we're immature and we do things wrong, he doesn't hold that grudge against us. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't look for a way to get justice. He absorbs our sin and he forgives us. We need to learn that attitude for ourselves. I think that's a hard thing. As people are mean toward us, we feel like we must have justice, we must retaliate. We can't even imagine, we can't even fathom just absorbing the hit that we've taken, uh, the suffering that we've gone through, and not responding and not giving them what it is that we've received, plus a little, so that they learn their lesson. But God doesn't do that toward us. And he doesn't want us to do that toward each other either. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy and grace. And it's available to all who will come to him and accept it. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how evil you've been or how you've spoken against God, or how you've acted toward God, he can take it. And he's sitting there with arms wide open, tears in his eyes, happy to see your heart being changed and desiring to be with him. Because that's who he is. He gave his son so that you could be accepted and freely forgiven by his blood. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet accepted that gift, what are you waiting for? It's available for you. It's available for us all. If we can help you in any way, will you please come as we stand and as we sing?